Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. For over 175 years, four purposes have defined Hillsdale's mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to our brothers and sisters at Hillsdale for their great sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Numbers 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. I hope you'll stick with us. This hour is very, very important. Our second hour, we have a special guest, Brandon Straka, who was charged uh, on January 6th. So we want to talk to him, an old friend of the program. You know Brandon Straka. He was a leftist. And he started the walk-away movement for Democrats. Great young guy. And he wants to come on the program and explain what has taken place. And I want to make sure he has the opportunity. to. Before we do, I have uh, been listening to people pile on on this issue of January 6th and whether the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, had the authority to reject or to send back to various states their elector counts. The snideness, the um, self-aggrandizement of those who insist he had no authority whatsoever, from former federal prosecutors to reprobates, with a computer is really quite remarkable. And so I want to circle back on this question because they are 100% certain he did not. I'm not advocating anything. I'm not a special pleader for anything. But we're going to look at this. And we're going to look at it without the blinding hate for Trump at National Review or the Wall Street Journal or these other places. I think for myself, 
I study these things myself. The Constitution, the Federalist Papers, Madison's Notes, the state conventions, all that I've studied my entire life, say nothing about this topic. Zero. So they point to a statute that was passed about 150 years ago by Congress that lays out a process that is to take place as their authority. Well, I look at the Constitution as my authority. But before we get there, I have a question for you. It'll all make sense when I'm done, so you've got to stay the whole hour. Is the phrase judicial review anywhere in the United States Constitution? Anywhere? Under Article 3? When the framers wrote Article 3 and said very little about the court they created, the Supreme Court, other than in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton said it would be the, the least dangerous of the branches of government. Were they promoting this idea of judicial review? That the court would have the final say on the interpretation of the Constitution of the United States? Where is that in the Constitution, Mr. Producer? Nowhere. It is an implied power. And yet if you defy a court, and you've heard me say it, you could be held in contempt of court. The court has overridden statutes, federal statutes. It's overridden Congress. It's overridden the president. Where did all this power come from? The court assumed this power. Starting with a case called Marbury versus Madison. Very famous case. You may have heard about it. And it's been roundly celebrated from the ACLU to the Federalist Society. Many years ago, when I wrote my first book, Men in Black, I, I condemned this decision. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Edward Livingston in 1825, said this member of the government was at first considered as the most harmless and helpless of all its organs. But it has proved that the power of declaring what the law is by sapping and mining slyly and without alarm the foundations of the Constitution can do what open force would not dare to attempt. So how did America reach the point, I wrote, where the federal judiciary has amassed more influence over more areas of modern life than any other branch of the government? From which section of the Constitution were the courts granted the authority to overrule Congress and the President? The answer is that the Supreme Court has simply taken such power for itself. Nowhere in the Constitution is the federal judiciary expressly given the authority to interject itself in every facet of federal and state operation. Federal courts have accumulated their power under the rubric of judicial review. Judicial review involves a court overturning an act of Congress or the executive branch on the grounds that the act in question contravenes the federal Constitution. It is founded on the principle that courts will be unbiased guardians of the clear meaning of the Constitution. At the time of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, there were only a handful of instances in which state courts overruled legislatures for violating state constitutions. Moreover, state courts did not assume carte blanche authority to rule on any subject. The courts followed British common law, 
They ruled on criminal law, matters of equity between individuals and businesses and other legal matters. Courts also, as a rule, regarded the state constitutions as the central legal nervous system of the respective states. Because the constitution of a state had been adopted by the people, generally through a convention and or direct popular vote, it was considered by judges to be a higher law than an act of the legislature or a state governor. The Virginia Constitution of 1776 even included a statement of principles that, quote, all power of suspending laws or the execution of laws by any authority without consent of the representatives of the people is injurious to their rights and ought not to be exercised, unquote. There was no mechanism in the Articles of Confederation, the forerunner to the Constitution, for the sort of sweeping judicial authority later assumed by federal courts. The Articles, in fact, didn't establish a permanent federal judiciary, but relied on state courts to resolve disputes. Most delegates at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 thought a federal court system was necessary, that the federal judiciary should be independent of and not subordinate to the other branches of government, That principle was affirmed in nearly every state constitution, and that federal judges should serve during good behavior essentially for life. These state constitutions aim to insulate judges from political pressure, but every state constitution explicitly allowed judges to be impeached as a check on misbehavior. In other words, judges were expected to be accountable to the constitution and the people who approved it. The first mention of the judiciary in the Virginia plan, which served as the initial outline, for the Constitutional Convention, was to make it part of a Council of Revision that would examine acts of the National Legislature and approve or reject them, though Congress could pass a bill over the Council's veto. Beyond its role in the Council of Revision, the Virginia Plan had the federal judiciary consisting of a supreme tribunal, and inferior tribunals as designated by the legislature. The inferior tribunals would be arbiters of fact, while the supreme tribunal would be the final court of appeal. The jurisdiction for the judiciary was also specific. Quote, all piracies and felonies on the high seas, captures from an enemy, cases in which foreigners or citizens of other states applying to such jurisdictions may be interested, or which respect the collection of the national revenue, impeachments of any national officers, and questions which may involve national peace and harmony. Within days of the Constitutional Convention, beginning its work on June 4, 1787, The delegates took up the question of the court's participation in this Council of Revision, and there was substantial opposition to it. Few delegates spoke in favor of the concept, and there were many questions about the judiciary maintaining its objectivity if it were involved in negating legislative acts. The convention had its most focused exchange on the topic of judicial authority on August 15, 1787. Again, taking up the issue of judicial veto over acts of Congress, the debate began with James Madison, quote, moved all, that all acts before they become law should be submitted both to the executive and supreme judiciary departments, that if either of these should object two-thirds of each house, if both object three-fourths of each house, should be necessary to overrule the objections and give, to the act, and give the acts the force of law. Charles Pickney of South Carolina opposed the inference of the judges in the legislative business, It will involve them in parties and give a previous tinter to their opinions. John Dickinson of Delaware argued that judges should not be empowered to overturn acts of national legislature. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, that would be Dickinson of Pennsylvania, disapproved the judges meddling in politics and parties. 
The framers considered and rejected the inclusion of the judiciary in the review process. They didn't want judges involved in either the legislative process with all the political intrigue that would entail or reviewing laws they would eventually have to adjudicate. Hugh Williamson, a delegate from North Carolina, noted that he preferred to give the power to the president alone rather than admitting the judges into the business of legislation. Ultimately, the convention came up with the presidential veto. But most important, the framers did not intend to grant general authority to the judiciary to rule on the constitutionality of legislative acts. Madison, who by August 27 had dropped his initial support for the judiciary being involved in a veto, summed up the convention's take on judicial review. He wrote, he doubted whether it was not, go- whether it was not going too far to extend the jurisdiction of the court generally to cases arising under the Constitution, and whether it ought not be limited to cases of a judiciary nature. The right of expounding the Constitution in cases not of this nature ought not be given to that department. In the final analysis, the framers had wanted to empower the judiciary with a legislative veto. They could have done it. They didn't. Instead, the convention crafted a judiciary, like many other provisions in the final Constitution, as a product of compromise. It was a compromise between the interests of the individual states and the need for a federal government that would be strong enough, flexible enough, to meet the present and future needs of the nation with a diverse interest. It was also the clear intention of the framers that no one branch would be submitted, uh, excuse me, subsumed by the other. And once the convention completed its work, the battle began over the proposed Constitution. Is this boring everyone, you think, Mr. Producer? The Federalist Papers, authored by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, were among the first and the best post-Revolutionary War examples of American campaign literature. There are a series of 85 essays that began appearing in the New York newspapers as little more than a month after the Constitutional Convention ended on September 17, 1787, written to persuade members of Congress and the states to adopt it. Essays 78 to 83, all written by Hamilton, contain the principal discussions of the nature and authority of this new judiciary. Because there was no federal judiciary in existence at the time, And the principal concern was protecting the judiciary from being subsumed by the seemingly more powerful executive and legislative branches. Much of the debate centered on creating an independent judiciary rather than in limiting the scope and authority of federal judges. It's for this reason that much of Hamilton's effort in Federalist 78 was dedicated to an explanation of the steps taken by the framers of the new Constitution to ensure that the federal judges would be independent and free of control from Congress, the president, the political whims of the day in the various state legislatures. The judiciary did not represent a threat, Hamilton wrote, quote, so long as the judiciary remains truly distinct from both the legislature and executive. For I agree that there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers. This is exactly what has happened, but in reverse. Instead of being subsumed by Congress or the President, the judiciary has subsumed substantial authority over the other branches. While other issues garnered most of the attention in the ratification process, there were commentators on both sides of the debate who addressed the nature and potential problems that could develop in the federal judiciary. Unquestionably, spokesmen such as Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were very persuasive as pro-Constitution voices, but there were also forceful opponents of the Constitution who saw the potential abuses. Robert Yates, an ardent anti-federalist and delegate to the convention from New York, was an especially articulate opponent of the Constitution. 
And he wrote a series of essays in the New York Journal, which became known as the Anti-Federalist Papers. And he wrote under the name Brutus. And when we come back, I want you to know what he had to say about this whole issue, the judiciary and judicial review. And I will get to the point. What does all of this have to do with January 6th? I'll be right back. My friends, I know you love freedom and want to defend it. And I know you love the Constitution. Well, so do I. And it's the same with Hillsdale College, the best liberal arts college in America. Hillsdale's mission is pursuing truth and defending liberty. It gives its undergraduate and graduate students the best education, and it is working to make this education available to all. But today, I want to tell you about Hillsdale's free monthly speech digest of liberty. It's called Imprimus. Over 6 million households and businesses receive Imprimus for free every month. And you can join them by subscribing at levinforhillsdale.com. There are no strings attached. Generous donors who love freedom make it possible for Hillsdale to send in Primus to you for free. And Primus is one of my favorite publications. It's short, smart, useful, and fun. Start receiving your own free copy of this great digest of liberty. Visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. I'm going to need every minute of this hour to get through this, but stick with me. Robert Yates, or Brutus, in the Anti-Federalist Papers, he said, The real effect of this system of the judiciary of government will therefore be brought home to the feelings of the people through the medium of the judicial power. It is, moreover, of great importance to examine with care the nature and extent of the judicial power, because those who are to be vested with it are to be placed in a situation altogether unprecedented in a free country. They are to be rendered totally independent, both of the people and the legislature, both with respect to their offices and salaries. No errors they may commit can be corrected by any power above them. If any such power there be, nor can they be removed from office for making ever so many erroneous adjudications. The only causes for which they can be displaced is conviction of treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. This part of the plan is so modeled as to authorize the courts not only to carry into execution the powers expressly given, but where there are wanting or ambiguity expressed, to supply what is wanting by their own decisions. Now, I've got more on this. The goal here is not to re-argue Marbury versus Madison, but to use it. To use it. Stick with me. I know it's a little highbrow, but stick with me. I'm going to pull it back to January 6th at the end of this hour. Stay with me. My friends, I know you love freedom and want to defend it. And I know you love the Constitution. Well, so do I. And it's the same with Hillsdale College, the best liberal arts college in America. Hillsdale's mission is pursuing truth and defending liberty. It gives its undergraduate and graduate students the best education, and it is working to make this education available to all. But today, I want to tell you about Hillsdale's free monthly speech digest of liberty. It's called Imprimus. Over 6 million households and businesses receive Imprimus for free every month, and you can join them by subscribing at levinforhillsdale.com. There are no strings attached. Generous donors who love freedom make it possible for Hillsdale to send Imprimus to you for free. 
And Primus is one of my favorite publications. It's short, smart, useful, and fun. Start receiving your own free copy of this great digest of liberty. Visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. In a world of pathetic liberal potholes, he's a truck full of hot constitutional asphalt. Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811. Okay, folks. On March 8, 1802, just days after Thomas Jefferson's followers, the Republicans took control of both houses of Congress because uh, Jefferson had won the presidency also, Congress repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801. On April 29, 1802, Congress enacted the Judiciary Act of 1802, which, among other things, abolished the 16 new judgeships created by President Adams and his Federalist Party. See, Adams tried to rush it through as fast as he could because of the delay between the election and uh, Jefferson's inauguration. In its 1803 Marbury versus Madison decision, the Supreme Court determined it had the power to decide cases about the constitutionality of congressional executive actions. And when it deemed they violated the Constitution, overturned them. The shorthand label given to this court made authorities judicial review. And this quite literally is the foundation for the runaway power exercised by the federal courts to this day. What is far less recognized is that Marbury started out as anything but the ominous precedent it has become. It was a brilliantly conceived political strategy crafted by John Marshall, a master politician. Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, wrote the decision not to set a revolutionary precedent, but to deny the new president, Thomas Jefferson, his longtime political rival, an opportunity to rebuff a Supreme Court controlled by Jefferson's Federalist opponents. This is Levin's take, based on my reading of history. Marbury was precipitated by the election of 1800, in which Jefferson, the incumbent vice president and leader of the Republicans, ran for president against the incumbent president, John Adams, leader of the Federalists. The Federalists controlled both houses of Congress, but were torn between the followers of Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's faction withheld its support for Adams' re-election bid in 1800, and the race ended in an electoral college tie between Jefferson and his vice presidential running mate, Aaron Burr. This is what brought us the 12th Amendment, by the way. Adams came in third. The election was then thrown into the House of Representatives. Realizing it would not win re-election, Adams moved to solidify his party's influence in the federal government. The passage of the Judiciary Act of 1801, creating 16 new federal circuit judgeships, was part of his strategy. Just prior to leaving office, Adams selected in the Federalist-controlled lame-duck Senate-confirmed nominees to fill the posts. Adams' turn ran out, however, before John Marshall, who was then Secretary of State, could actually deliver the commissions of office to some of the designees. Let me stop there. There is no way Marshall should have even been involved in this decision, as I explain in the book later. He had a conflict of interest. He had a conflict of interest. He was the Secretary of State who would deliver the commissions for his president and his party that lost. Marshall's successor as Secretary of State, James Madison, refused to deliver the commissions at Jefferson's direction. And William Marbury, among others, filed suit in federal court seeking an order, writ of mandamus, 
directing Madison to deliver him his judgeship as Justice of the Peace, his commission. Marshall, a long arrival at Jefferson's in Virginia politics, was one of the most articulate leaders in the Federalist Party. Marshall had served in the Virginia State House, the U.S. House of Representatives, and was one of President Adams' representatives to France in 1797, and then, of course, Secretary of State. He was nominated to be Chief Justice by President Adams and assumed the post on February 4, 1801, exactly one month before Adams' term ended. So he was appointed and confirmed quickly after Jefferson had won the presidency. With the Republican majority elected to both houses in Congress in 1800, Marshall realized that Jefferson and his Republicans could denude the Supreme Court of authority and that he as Chief Justice would be impeached and removed from office, given the way he was appointed. This is Mark speaking. Marshall understood that in Marbury case, if he ordered Secretary of State Madison to deliver Marbury's commission to office, Jefferson would order Madison to ignore the Supreme Court's writ, and the court's authority would be seriously weakened. Marshall was also concerned that he not be seen as protecting the interests of the Federalist jurists like Marbury, who had assumed his position as a justice of the peace and had been hearing cases and issuing judgments for a year. Bearing all this in mind, Chief Justice Marshall's decision to Marbury, while upsetting the Constitution's balance of power and the relationship between the federal government and the states, was a master political stroke. Marshall stated that Marbury, consistent with legal doctrine at the time, had something akin to a property right to the office, to which he had been nominated and confirmed. Marshall also said the federal judiciary should be able to issue an order directing the appointment of of, uh, Marbury, but because the Constitution did not enumerate such an original right for the Supreme Court, well, the court was powerless to do it. Then Marshall went well beyond the specific issues in the case. He could have ended it right there. But he said that the court had a responsibility to set aside acts of Congress that violate principles enumerated in the Constitution. I don't have time to read what he said, but it's here. Marshall's Federalist Party had lost the presidency in Congress, but Marshall was determined to fight back. And so the doctrine of judicial review was born. Yes, the Constitution is indeed the supreme law of the land. But now the court, by its own fiat, would decide what is or is not constitutional. The Constitution's structure, including the balance of power between the three branches, was now disturbed, if not broken. Although Jefferson is claimed by modern Democrats as the father of their political party, he was a leading opponent of judicial activism. After Marbury, Jefferson became an even more vocal critic of what he viewed as the overreaching of the judiciary under Marshall's leadership. To Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, Jefferson wrote a year after Marbury, quote, The Constitution meant that its coordinate branches should be checks on each other. But the opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional, what not, not only for themselves and their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and the executive, also in their spheres, would make the judiciary a despotic branch. And it goes on. The Constitution would not have been ratified. It would not have enough votes to ratify. Nine states. If the assumption of judicial review under Marshall had been explicitly stated in the Constitution itself, there's no way. Now, what does this have to do with January 6th? 
The Constitution explicitly says that Article 2, Section 1, the second paragraph, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. This was understood by the states to mean that the legislatures would have the authority to make the determination on how they were selected. Very rarely in the Constitution did the framers reach out and specify a branch within the states. But here it did. The legislature. Not the governor. Not a state court. Not a board of election. The legislature decides. The United States Supreme Court in 2020, with all this judicial review power to reach into every cultural issue in the country, every classroom in the country, without limit, other than its own limitations, that it imposes rarely on itself, had the requirement to ensure that the the black letter law, the text of the Constitution was upheld. This language is not confusing. It's not confounding. It's as clear as night and day. And it was clearly violated in the 2020 election in one state after another, purposely, by Democrats and the Democrat Party, by individuals who they hired, hitmen litigators, like Mark Elias and others, who went around the Republican state legislatures in the Republican states, including Republican states with Republican executives who are irrelevant to this process, except under law, which I'll get to in a moment, and defied the Constitution. The Supreme Court failed to act, claiming judicial review in the past for the last 200 and some years. But in this case, it chose to duck. That sent the matter to the United States Congress to decide. And so what they do at National Review and elsewhere, I'm not just picking on them, they go to the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is an enormously complex law. In fact, it is a contradicting law in many respects. Um, under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, the Vice President, who is the President of the Senate, undertakes the task of opening the electoral certificates. The Vice President's role is limited. Now, both houses can overrule the Vice President's decision to include or exclude votes. The Vice President's role to include or exclude votes can be overruled by both houses. And if there's a tie, say, between the House of a state and the Senate of a state, the governor's certification trumps, according to the statute. According to the statute. Now, decisions have been made by vice presidents serving as president of the Senate with respect to the electoral count. 1961, Richard Nixon. He allowed late filed votes to count, even though they were against him. In 69, Hubert Humphrey, having run for president in 68, decided he better recuse himself from the count, which is what he did. There have been challenges 
really since the beginning of our country, to elections of presidents and vice presidents. I mean, why did they pass this law in 1887 to begin with? Because of the great battle in 1876. That's why. Where does Congress have the authority to pass a law like this? Does it have the authority to pass a law like this? Well, setting procedures for the counting. Do they have the power to exclude the vice president as president of the Senate to have any effective role other than as a secretary, administrator, opening envelopes and making pronouncements about what he's received? What if you're president of the Senate, you're vice president of the United States, and you know there's disputes in states? You know there's a constitutional dispute in a state like Pennsylvania. And you, as the president of the Senate and as vice president, you you have an oath to uphold the Constitution too. And you read that second paragraph under Article 2, Section 1. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. Full stop. As the legislature thereof may direct. And you know as a matter of fact that that is not only in dispute, that that did not occur. And then you have people arguing, but the electors were selected and sent to the archivist of the United States by the governor. And yet it's the legislature that's challenging the governor. We're told too bad. The Vice President of the United States does not have any explicit power under the Constitution to do anything. In fact, we look at the 1887 statute and the way that we interpret it is that his role is utterly ministerial. You mean like judicial review? Where is judicial review in the Constitution? Well, somebody has to make the final decision. Well, where is the president of the Senate's role if he or she know, knows or believes that some of the electors being sent to the archivist and then to the joint session of Congress are in effect spoiled? Because there's a dispute between the legislature and the governor, but the governor, nonetheless, signs the accreditation. So when I read articles like Trump's absurd attack on Pence, and these guys, of course, they're not going to talk about the Constitution, they're not going to talk about past disputes and challenges, they're not going to talk about Article 2, Uh, Section 1, Paragraph 2. They're just going to dismiss Trump. Whether by hook or by crook. Trump has a better understanding than they do. Trump has a better understanding than they do. Either intuitively or otherwise. 
joining the mob and telling us and telling us something that's not true because you can't demonstrate it under the Constitution of the United States serves no purpose but to mislead the American people. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. My friends, I know you love freedom and want to defend it. And I know you love the Constitution. Well, so do I. And it's the same with Hillsdale College, the best liberal arts college in America. Hillsdale's mission is pursuing truth and defending liberty. It gives its undergraduate and graduate students the best education, and it is working to make this education available to all. But today, I want to tell you about Hillsdale's free monthly speech digest of liberty. It's called Imprimus. Over 6 million households and businesses receive Imprimus for free every month. And you can join them by subscribing at levinforhillsdale.com. There are no strings attached. Generous donors who love freedom make it possible for Hillsdale to send in Primus to you for free. And Primus is one of my favorite publications. It's short, smart, useful, and fun. Start receiving your own free copy of this great digest of liberty. Visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. Insurrection, January 6th. Well, if there was an insurrection, broadly defined, it began well before January 6th, didn't it? The Capitol building wasn't stormed before January 6th, during the election, of course. But the changes to the laws involved in selecting a president and a vice president, in many cases, were in violation of the federal constitution. That's very specific. And it was violated by judges. It was violated by governors. It was violated by bureaucrats. It was violated by billionaires. It was violated by local administrators. But if we're going to call it an insurrection, and the insurrection began long before January 6th. And this is what the pseudo-conservatives, the never-Trumpers, the media and the Marxist left do not want to discuss. They'll tell you 66 lawsuits. Nobody wanted to hear any. But the judges heard a lot of lawsuits from the Democrats. And in most cases upheld the changes in laws. Uh, And of course we have a, a brave appellate court in Pennsylvania that just ruled too. So let's not pretend that things were going to be changed or all changed on January 6th. Things were changed long before that. And now when Republican legislatures are trying to fix it, they are accused of acting like Jim Crow. Get it, folks? See how it works? I hope you'll replay this entire hour for family and friends. When we come back, Brandon Straka with his attorney. This segment of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Pure Talk. Pure Talk offers great coverage and can save your family money on your wireless bill every single month. Go to puretalk.com to find the plan that's right for you. Thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for this sponsorship, Pure Talk. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, 
deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, Brandon Strzok. I don't know Brandon well, but I know of him well. I interviewed him on uh, Life, Liberty, and Levin some time ago. I've been a big fan of his, this walkaway movement. He's a brave young man. Uh when he was participating in some protests, Antifa and Black Lives Matter would show up and very violent and abuse him and the people he was with. And he went to the protest on January 6th. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't know much about what took place uh, with Brandon. But I want Brandon to come on and tell us his story from beginning to end as best as he can in this in this hour. Brandon, uh, I'd like to say how are you, my friend, but I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, you're not very happy. Tell, tell, us, tell us the story of what took place. I'm going to give you as much time as I can in commercial radio during the course of this hour. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess I want to first start off by saying uh, how much it means to me that you're giving me this platform and opportunity to tell my story because this is the first time in over a year that I've spoken publicly uh, as I've gone through what's really been an unbelievable nightmare that people can't even imagine. I'm about to explain it, I think, to everybody. But um, thank you so, so much. And I want to tell you, I'm going to do the best I can to power through this. But I I have to be honest with you that I am suffering from quite a bit of PTSD from a lot of things that have happened this year. And a lot of this can be a lot to talk about. So I'm going to do, I think, the very best that I can. So take your time. You're going to do fine. I just want people to know, and I've asked for his lawyer to be here on the other line to make sure that Brandon is well protected from the from the authorities and so forth. But you go right ahead. Thank you. Well, the first thing that I want people to know is that I was scheduled to be a speaker at a uh, permitted event that was set up at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, it, it was announced uh, a week or two before January 6th. Uh, there were a number of people, activists around the country. We had been doing events uh, under, using a hashtag called Stop the Steal. Uh, these were uh, perfectly peaceful, uh, perfectly legal, First Amendment protected free speech events that we were doing in swing states around the country to encourage conservatives to keep up the momentum about something that they believed was very wrong with the 2020 election. You know, People didn't get this idea because they heard it from Donald Trump, and they didn't get this idea because they heard it from me. Everybody went to bed on November 4th, 2020, feeling that something was a little bit off. And when we woke up on November 5th, 2020, I think the majority of people knew that something felt very, very off. This wasn't an idea that was created by one person that spread. We were all feeling it at the same time. And so I joined a group of activists to go to swing states around the country to keep that momentum up and basically to say, we, the American people, at minimum 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump and probably more than that, feel that something is very wrong. We want the vote to be audited. We want it to be audited 
very thoroughly, signature matching everything, not these kind of BS uh, audits that were uh, they were trying to pass off. And we wanted people to keep this momentum up. And then it was announced by Donald Trump on Twitter that uh, there was going to be a large event in January 6th. He said he wanted everyone to come and show up. I was in Georgia at that time with a group of, uh, I had assembled thousands of activists to do door knocking and phone banking for Purdue and Leffler for an initiative that I created called Save the Senate because I was trying to preserve those two Senate seats for the Republican Party. And the Senate runoff elections were on January 5th. I got an offer to speak on January 6th at the Capitol. And so I made a very tragic decision not to be a poll watcher in Georgia, as I had originally planned. And at last minute, I ended up buying a plane ticket to Washington, D.C. and flying there, where I then got an offer to speak at Freedom Plaza on the 5th and there at the Capitol after the president was scheduled to speak at the Ellipse on the 6th. So the morning of, I spoke at Freedom Plaza on the 5th in Washington, D.C., and I gave a very fiery speech, which I, I, I thought at the time was still legally permitted uh, in the United States. I use words like revolution, as in we're on the brink of a revolution. And what I meant when I said that is that for the first time, conservatives in this country were really standing up and saying that they felt that something was wrong and they, they were going to uh, fight in a nonviolent way for, for what they believe in and what is right. These words ended up getting used against me for the rest of the year, as it's been purported that I was trying to create a, a revolution and start a civil war. But that comes a little bit later, I guess, in the story. I gave a very fiery speech on January 5th. And then on January 6th, early in the morning, I was sitting in the front row watching President Trump speak at the Ellipse. Uh, it was a pretty joyous day, even though it started very early. I was there with uh, lots of uh, well-known uh, conservative allies and friends. We were dancing. Uh, the atmosphere was happy. Uh, it was upbeat. We sat there. We had a, a great day at the Ellipse listening to the president speak. And then he told everyone, as was always planned, to march peacefully to the Capitol. The event was called, despite what the media has reported, the event was not called Stop the Steal. The event was called March to Save America. And so there was always supposed to be a march to the Capitol, followed by an event with dozens of speakers. So I was one of the last people to be able to leave the ellipse because I had such a great seat. And one of the downfalls, I guess, of being in the front row is that you're the last person out. So I was one of the last people to leave the ellipse. And I jumped on the D.C. metro and I headed toward the Capitol uh, to do my speaking engagement. When the when the train was approaching the station near the Capitol, I started getting text messages from friends and people I know who were at home watching on television. And they were saying things like, people are going inside the Capitol. The Capitol's been breached. I had no idea what this meant. Uh, but the first thing that I thought of was, honestly, the number of times that left-wing activists like Alyssa Milano and uh, a number of other left-wing activists have gone inside of buildings, pounded on senators' doors, shouted during events. And I thought to myself, wow, something really interesting seems to be happening today, possibly, with the conservative movement, something unlike I've ever seen, I've never seen Republicans or Trump supporters do anything like that. So I didn't know whether to really believe it or not. But I thought to myself, one of two things is true here. Either that's not happening and my event is scheduled and I'm going to go speak as planned, or something very unique and inter interesting is happening at the Capitol and I want to be there to document it and film it. 
So I continued walking toward the Capitol. And when I got about three to five blocks away, I started shooting a video. And I just took one long, continuous shot as I was approaching the Capitol grounds. Now, at the time, it, it didn't occur to me that there was anything that I should be looking for or anything unusual about this. But I will be posting my video publicly later, not today, but probably in the coming week. And there's several things I want people to pay attention to when they look at my video. The first thing is that there's not one single police officer visible in my video. I approached the Capitol from the east side, not the west side, which is sort of synonymous with all of the violence and the window smashing and everything that you saw. Those of us who were on the east side didn't witness any of that because it wasn't happening, not to mention the fact that I was arriving at somewhere around 2.30 p.m., which I believe was a considerable amount of time after those things that happened on the west side. So as I'm entering the east side of the Capitol grounds, what you'll notice in my video is that there are thousands of people just wandering calmly, and some of them even look a little bit bored, just sort of holding signs, singing songs, having conversations. There's a woman walking her dog, nothing terribly unusual whatsoever. And at that point, I enter the Capitol grounds and I said to the camera, uh, there are thousands of people here, thousands of people walking around. I get closer and closer to the Capitol. And as I get closer to the building, I notice that at the top of the stairs on the east side, there seems to be a bit more of a swirling energy happening up there than there was on the outer grounds where there were thousands of people just sort of calmly standing around. So I started ascending the stairs on the east side. And as I began walking up, you can see a man in my video holding his hat in his hand and motioning down to the people below. And he's shouting, they've opened the doors. They're letting us in. We're going in. We're going in. The doors are open. They've opened the doors. At that moment, I began repeating what he said. I said, we're going in. We're going in. The man says we're going in. And so I walk up to the top of the stairs. And when I got to the top, what I noticed was that there were two large metal doors on the east side of the Capitol that were wide open. And there were probably hundreds of people standing outside, just standing there, clearly with a desire to probably try to advance toward the door or to go inside. But there was what I would, cons what I would say a pretty uh, considerable bottleneck effect because so many people were kind of pressed together. Uh, that no one could get inside quickly if that, in fact, was their goal, to get inside. Now, there were people in front of me, hundreds of people, much taller than me, people with flags on giant poles that were hanging down. So I took my camera, which was still recording, and I held it in both of my hands full, with my arms fully extended above my head, and I pointed it down toward the, the two open doors that people were advancing toward. And I simply stood there, and I filmed for about eight minutes. And a number of things happened during that eight minutes. I mean, there were a lot of people. There was a, a lot of energy and, and chaos. But for the most part, my main objective was to try to document what it was that I was seeing. And at the end of that eight minutes, a man came outside of the Capitol, and he got onto a bullhorn, and he announced using some rather coarse and colorful language that Congress had been cleared, uh, that everyone should go home, and he said, you know, we came what we do. We, we did what we came here to do. Everybody head out. Some, something along those lines. At the moment that he said that, I immediately turned around and I told the people behind me, uh, clear out, go this way, go this way. You know, they don't go inside. And 
then I walked down the stairs and I spent about another 20 to 30 minutes on the Capitol grounds interviewing people, asking, you know, what brought you out here today? What did you see? What was your experience? Why are you here? And in the meantime, I was getting a lot of messages from uh, uh, different cable news shows asking if I was there, asking if I was getting footage and if I could come on the show. So I went back to my hotel, and this is where I made <laughs> several very tragic mistakes. Which ended All right, up I want you to wait right here. My life. I want you to wait right here. I have yes. to take a commercial break. You, you finished, and you're at the hotel, and you say you made a tragic mistake. We'll pick up right from there. We're talking to Brenda Strzok, uh, who has been, was charged and uh, was arrested and charged, and I want to get into all that, too, uh, as, this, as, this, uh, as this story unfolds. I didn't know any of this. We're just listening because we want to know what took place. We'll be right back. in. Inflation under our current administration is at 40-year highs. Everything's more expensive. Cars, gas, groceries, housing, cost of living increases are bankrupting Americans, which is why you need to find areas in your life where you can actually save money. And your wireless bill is one of them. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one, too. And listen to this. The more lines you have, the more you save. Right now, you can get four lines, talk, text, and data for just 64 bucks. That's not per line. That's total, which is how the average family is saving over $800 a year. Find out how much you can save. So do this. Go to puretalk.com. Find the plan that's right for you. Find the phone that's right for you. Or just bring your own. Then, this month only, enter promo code Levin Podcast, and you'll save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com, promo code Levin, L-E-V-I-N, Podcast. We're here with uh, Brandon Strzok of the... Uh what was your group called again? The Walkaway Movement, which was very, very profound, very powerful. You've been out there as a uh, activist now for some time, a supporter of President Trump. So let's pick up where you left off. You uh, you left the scene and you go back to your hotel. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I went back to my hotel, and at this point, you know, I had several cable news shows reaching out to me asking if I would be available to come on, share my footage, and share my commentary. And uh, I, I, I thought, great, you know, I, I would love to, to talk about what I had just seen. And I had just captured, like I said, this, you know, 10, 10 and a half minute long continuous video of what at the time I believed was the Capitol breach. What I, I believed that what I had witnessed was the totality of what was being called the Capitol breach, which, again, consisted of I didn't see a single window being broken or smashed. I didn't see any vandalism. I didn't see uh, destruction, violence, all of these things that had occurred on the west side of the building, the images that people are so used to seeing when they think of January 6th. That was not my experience. I did not witness any of that over on the east side. And so I, I, I uploaded my video to Twitter, and I basically said, you know, this is what I witnessed today at the Capitol. And then I turned on the television in my hotel and that's when I started seeing the talking heads, uh, conservative talking heads on television, 
talking about how ashamed they were and how embarrassed they were. And, oh, my God, the people at the Capitol, this isn't who we are. This is what a dark day in history. And you have to bear in mind, this is not the first time that I feel like I've seen conservative cable talking heads selling out conservative American people. And, you know, I, I have a big problem with this, and I've had a big problem with this for a long time. And I take the blue check mark next to my name and my, my following very seriously. And I like to be a, a voice and be of service to the American people. And I don't like it when I see people who've made a lot of money off of the conservative people in this country turn their backs on them. And that's what I felt like was happening again. And so I began speaking out against the cable news talking heads and saying things like, you know, these people at the Capitol are just desperate to be heard. These are common, everyday people who have no voice in this country. So they finally show up in Washington, D.C. and demand to be heard, and nobody's taking them seriously. And now suddenly all the cable news talking heads want to make fun of them and talk about how ashamed they are of their behavior. And essentially what I said was, I'm not going to join the cacophony of voices who are making fun of and, and shaming these people who did this. Now, again, I had no idea what had happened on the other side. Mm-hmm. So I even made a comment saying, you know, patriots at the Capitol, hold the line, hold your ground. Because when I had left the Capitol, what I saw were thousands of people standing there. People were singing songs, holding signs. The, the atmosphere was very, very calm. So it was about an hour or two after I made these comments that I started to see the footage on the news of how bad it had been on the other side. And immediately I realized that I had acted impulsively and I'd spoken too soon and I became very embarrassed. So I took my tweets down. I took my video down and I started expressing. I said, look, I did. I I spoke too soon. I did not have the full picture here. You you know, sorry, I'm going to shut my mouth until I figure out exactly what happened here. And essentially, I left it at that. And I decided, you know, I flew back to to my apartment the next day. I got on uh, YouTube. I made a long video sort of explaining what I had seen and explaining why I had said what I said and then subsequently took it down. And I thought that was that. You know, never in a million years did it occur to me that I, what, anything I did could be considered criminal. And so I sort of moved on with my life. And I kind of just started making plans for what I was going to do within the new year. And so imagine my surprise two and a half weeks later when at the crack of dawn, an FBI SWAT team comes into my apartment uh, pounding on my door. And I, I, I went running to the door. And when I opened it, within 30 seconds, I was turned around and cuffed and told that I was being taken to jail and I was facing multiple felony charges for what I had done at the Capitol. And I, I said, felonies? I said, I, I didn't even commit any crimes. And the FBI agent said something to me along the lines of, oh, I saw the video. I saw what you did. And and he made some mention about an assault on a police officer. And I I started, it's like I went crazy for a second. I I was sitting there going, okay, did I do something and I don't remember it? Like, did I black this out? What is he talking about? And they presented me with a search warrant. All right, let's stop right there. They presented you with a search warrant. That's where we have to leave it. I need to take a break. In the next, uh, we'll be back in four or five minutes. We pick it up. They presented you with a search warrant, the FBI SWAT team. This uh, is Mark Levin with Brandon Strzok, listening to his story as he explains what took place. And we're not nearly done, as I understand it. We'll be right back.
Inflation under our current administration is at 40-year highs. Everything's more expensive. Cars, gas, groceries, housing, cost of living increases are bankrupting Americans, which is why you need to find areas in your life where you can actually save money. And your wireless bill is one of them. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one, too. And listen to this. The more lines you have, the more you save. Right now, you can get four lines, talk, text, and data for just 64 bucks. That's not per line. That's total, which is how the average family is saving over $800 a year. Find out how much you can save. So do this. Go to puretalk.com. Find the plan that's right for you. Find the phone that's right for you. Or just bring your own. Then, this month only, enter promo code Levin Podcast, and you'll save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com, promo code Levin, L-E-V-I-N, podcast. If the world seems so confusing, Mark... We'll be glad to clear that up for you. Call in now at 877-381-3811. I'm on my brain and struck. This is his first interview about uh, what he has faced. Uh, he's had to be sort of be silent during this entire process. Brandon Strzok, I want us to continue. So pick up where you left off, please. Uh, yes, sir. So um, the FBI had come to my house, put me in handcuffs told me they were taking me to jail on multiple felony charges uh, for my behavior on January 6th and made some sort of mention of me being involved in an assault on a police officer. And um, none of this, of course, my head was spinning. None of this made any sense to me. But next thing I know, I was uh, being paraded uh, down my hallway of my apartment building by a team of FBI agents put into a car and taken to jail. And um, when I got there, uh, you know, there was this moment, and this is for me really where sort of the the, the source of the PTSD began. Because um, within the, it's like within a moment, I lost my identity as a human being. I stopped being Brandon Strzok, let alone Brandon Strzok, the walkaway campaign guy. And uh, I was wearing an orange jumpsuit, and I was sitting in jail. They uh, they brought me in a room called medical and uh, told me that they had to inject my arm with a substance because all new inmates in the prison system have to take a TB test. Uh, they were asking me questions like, if a fight breaks out in the jail, are you able to defend yourself? And I'm sitting here going, what the hell has happened to my reality? Like, what, what is going on? And they took me upstairs and put me in a concrete cell with a metal door in 24-hour-a-day lockdown. And shut the door when I and I asked them, "Am I going to be able to see a judge? Will I be able to see a judge today?" And they said, "No. There's a there's a blizzard. There's a snowstorm. So the courts are closed. We have no idea when you'll be able to see a judge. We have no idea when you'll be able to, uh, you, you know, try to plead to be able to get out of jail." They shut the door, and I and didn't open that door again for two days. Wow! And during that two days, I sat in that cell just literally breaking down emotionally because I thought to myself, this is Jan this is now January 25th, 2021. So Joe Biden became president five days before I got arrested. The Democrats have now taken full control of the federal government. I'm Brandon Strzok, the walkaway from the Democrats founder, and I'm now sitting in a concrete cell 
with absolutely no idea at this point what I've been charged with or accused of and no idea if anybody's coming to help me or what is going to happen or if anyone even knows that this has happened. And uh, after two days, uh, I was finally allowed uh, an attorney visit. Uh, My team had found me an attorney. I didn't know who this person was, but he set up a hearing for me with a judge and the judge did grant my release. I can tell you it was the most crushing and heartbreaking thing in the world to be standing in an orange jumpsuit and hear a judge say to me, the United States of America versus Brandon Strzok. But um, I, uh, I got out of jail and one of my teammates had flown into Omaha, Nebraska, where I was, so she could be there with me uh, when I got out of jail. And when I got out of jail, I, I went to her hotel room and I said, what is happening? Like, what is going on? And she said to me, they're accusing you of egging on an assault with a, with a police officer. And I said, yeah, but what are they talking about? And she said, there's a moment in your video where a police officer steps outside of the Capitol for like six seconds and somebody rips his shield away from him. And several people in the crowd start chanting, take it, take it, take his shield, take his shield. And they're saying you're one of those people. And I had to actually watch the video again to even see that moment that was happening. And uh, so at that moment, now I began to understand. She told me they're charging you with two felonies. The first felony is knowingly occupying restricted grounds. The second felony is impeding an officer in the line of duty. And the third charge is a misdemeanor of disorderly conduct with an intent to disrupt a hearing before Congress. And I I was just sitting there trying to process everything that she told me. And I I said, you know, how how bad is this? Like, how how bad is this? And she said, well, it's, it's all over the news. Um, she said, you know, our, we, all of our fundraising uh, portals have canceled us because I have uh, the Walkaway Foundation, the Walkaway Campaign Super PAC. I mean, this is, I, have an, I have an organization with employees. This is more than a social media movement. I mean, this has been really a, a successful grassroots operation. And uh, we had been at that point canceled by our, our fundraising platforms. Our email service canceled us. Uh, our accountant quit. My attorney quit. I mean, she just started rattling down this list of ways in which we had been decimated during this period of days that I was sitting in a cell. And I was trying to wrap my head around how this level of devastation could happen so quickly. And at that point, uh, move us, move us before we run out, move us to the point where you where where they're charging you, where they're making uh, where they're making whatever it was they were making you. They were trying to get you to plead. What? Tell us about that. Certainly. And uh, I do have my attorney on the line, too, and I definitely yes. want to encourage him to speak up at any point if, uh, Bill if S. I Saley, right? Turn, or if he has anything. Bill Saley. Bill Saley, yeah, and he's really Hello, been uh, an incredible source of strength for me. All right, Bill. Thanks uh, for that happened. Yeah. Uh, as far Bill, as the plea process, yes, 
Yeah, I can talk about the plea process. And Mark, just for background, I'm a former federal prosecutor, so I know how this process is supposed to work and not mm-hmm. supposed to work. So after filing a criminal complaint, and just so your listeners know, what a criminal complaint is, is a affidavit that's written by a federal agent and read by a judge and signed. It's not presented to a grand jury. Uh, Brandon was arrested on a criminal complaint, and for months we were in negotiations with the government to permit him to plea down to a misdemeanor. From the very beginning, uh, we had to advise Brandon that a trial in D.C. would probably not be favorable for him. The judges have expressed, in my opinion, extreme bias and lack of objectivity when it comes to these cases, and the jury pool um, would be horrendous. So our best bet, we believe, was to negotiate for the best plea deal we could get. In this case, it was a misdemeanor, and we were not happy about it, but we were you know, uh, glad that he wasn't going to be facing felonies and multiple years in federal prison. So ultimately, they allowed him to plead to a single misdemeanor count of disorderly conduct on the Capitol grounds. It's a petty offense. And we thought he would have a chance of uh, you know, just maybe paying a fine or some community service, and that would be the end of it. And uh, Mark, we were shocked when the government filed a 30-page sentencing position uh, basically characterizing Brandon as a, you know, an insurrectionist and uh, cataloging all his tweets and messages and statements and describing them as basically calls to incite violence. And so here they are allowing him to plead to a misdemeanor, but yet they want him sentenced for really uh, something much more serious and egregious. And what I believe are protected First Amendment speech, political speech, is, is still protected under the Constitution, and the government makes no mention of the First Amendment, no mention of Brandenburg, which is the Supreme Court case that protects First Amendment speech. They just assert these things, and the judges, the most disappointing thing about this case, Mark, was the judge was a Trump appointee, but mm-hmm. you would never know that. And the judge's name? Uh, the, uh, her name is Judge Friedrich. Mm-hmm. And what did the judge say? when the government presented this information and your client was in the courtroom? She'd let the government make their argument. She did not interrupt them. When it came to my turn to advocate for Brandon and pointing out, number one, he did not enter the Capitol. He did not engage in any violence. Uh, There are no aggravating factors in this case. She would cut me off. She would recharacterize the facts. She would push back that Brandon knew what he was doing that insinuating this was premeditated. He had told his followers they were going to breach the Capitol. The whole premise of the narrative by the judge and the government, Mark, is there was no legitimate basis for anyone to be president of the Capitol. That if you were there at the Capitol, you were basically interfering with the transition of an election that's legitimate. There is no legitimate basis for anyone to be there. And anyone there was there to breach the Capitol and do something untoward. And, I, and I, I found that argument very disturbing. And one of the arguments the government made, they said, but for Brandon's conduct, the riot would not have been successful. That's one of the arguments they made, because they said a riot takes a mob, takes a group, and Brandon was part of that group. So they want him held responsible for everything that happened on January 6th. And when I brought up, Mark, that, well, if you want to look at what caused this riot, let's talk about the security failures you know, and she shut me down. She would not even let me bring that up um, at the Capitol. That, that was our experience. How long did the hearing go on for? Um, it was about half an hour to 45 minutes, I would say. Brandon, mm-hmm. do you recall? So in other words, it wasn't uh, that long. Sounds... 
No, she had her mind made up. She, and as you know, in federal court, usually that's, that's how it goes. We prepared our sentencing position. In December, I had to, the government filed theirs one week before the hearing, 30 pages, and we worked all weekend to file a response to what they filed because it was just so inflammatory and egregious. Um, and she, but she had her mind made up. Well, it is, uh, I see she was associate counsel to President George W. Bush, from 2003 to 2006, uh, among other things. Um, I'm finding that a lot of these judges are making political statements. A lot of these judges who are district court judges, trial judges, uh, are conducting themselves like they are prosecutors rather than adjudicators. And uh, what you're telling me, what Brandon's saying, strikes me as this. So what is the, what is, what is the status now? Well, he was sentenced, and you're right, Mark, she would say things like, elections are to be challenged in court, not, you know, in, in the halls of Congress. She would just make these, these statements, I think. But elections have been challenged in the halls of Congress by congressmen and senators and, and members of the House. And, and we brought that up in our papers, that as you said, in the Constitution and under the United States Code, there is a procedure to challenge uh, the election. But they, they don't want to discuss it. They, they don't want to pretend. They want to pretend it doesn't exist. But she sentenced Brandon to three years probation. Three years? Point, I'll tell you. Three years probation, three months of house arrest. She uh, imposed the maximum fine of $5,000 and 60 hours of community service. And when I argued, Mark, that this is going to create a sentencing disparity because there are other defendants who got less time, she said Brandon is uh, case is more aggravating because of his following because of his position, and that he was encouraging violence. This was her attitude. And, Mark, Brandon is in Nebraska. He, he doesn't live in D.C. So when we asked for his probation to be transferred to the jurisdiction of Nebraska, she refused. So she's keeping jurisdiction over, over this. So quickly, in 30 year. seconds, tell the public what that means, that she's still over saying. That means he has to keep going back and forth from Nebraska to D.C., right? He doesn't have to keep going back and forth, but if they were to violate him for any reason, he would be back before that judge. So I mm -hmm. think these judges are trying to keep everyone on a leash, at least to the next election. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Inflation under our current administration is at 40-year highs. Everything's more expensive. Cars, gas, groceries, housing, cost of living increases are bankrupting Americans, which is why you need to find areas in your life where you can actually save money. And your wireless bill is one of them. Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one, too. And listen to this. The more lines you have, the more you save. Right now, you can get four lines, talk, text, and data for just 64 bucks. That's not per line. That's total, which is how the average family is saving over $800 a year. Find out how much you can save. So do this. Go to puretalk.com. Find the plan that's right for you. Find the phone that's right for you. Or just bring your own. Then, this month only, enter promo code Levin Podcast, and you'll save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com, promo code Levin, L-E-V-I-N, podcast. I want to get Brandon struck the remaining four minutes of the program. Go ahead, Brandon. 
thank you, Mark. I guess what I'd like to close out uh, tonight, again, I want to reiterate, thank you so much for talking with me. And, um, you know, it, it sounds like you and I are going to be talking talking again soon and i really look forward to that because uh, i i want uh i want us to really kind of get unpack more of the damage i think that's been done in the, the year following my arrest yep. but there's a few things i want to ask people to do uh if they want to help because i know people out there really want to stand up and support people who have gone through this and, and you know the first thing i want to say is there are definitely people on january 6th who deserve to be held accountable for the things that they did. The people who were smashing windows and engaging in violence and doing terrible things should absolutely be held accountable. But there are hundreds of people who are facing nonviolent, low-level misdemeanor charges who are being treated like terrorists and who are being treated like insurrectionists in this country. And I, I actually fall into this category. I'm actually, the government has put me on a terrorism watch list uh, which I'll explain more to you about in, in, in our next interview. But I want people to know there are three things, three ways in which people can really help if they want to do something. The first thing is we have completely allowed the left to take complete control of this narrative. We have fully lost control of any kind of truth surrounding January 6th. And so much so that now even conservative cable news is afraid to talk to people who have had this experience. Again, a nonviolent person on a nonviolent charge, they're afraid to have these guests on the show. I want everyone to get on Twitter, start tagging conservative cable news, tagging me, talk, tagging these talk show hosts, and tell them these stories need to be told. Brandon Strzok's story needs to be told. This narrative needs to be turned around. Get on Twitter, start tagging these guys, and demand to have our stories be told and get this truth out there. The second thing is USA Today has what they call an extremism department that reached out to all of my financial uh, pro payment processors and got them to shut me down. They shut down my legal defense fund. Uh, they shut down my ability to have income streams. Through You're Patreon telling me a news corporation and, and went after you to shut down your financial uh, ties? 100%. They have an extremism department. Yes, and they actually reached out to Patreon, or excuse me, to PayPal. They reached out to Stripe. Uh, they reached out to Venmo. I am now permanently banned from being able to use PayPal or Stripe or Venmo or Patreon. I had all of my revenue streams shut down. But I connected with a Trump-supporting, conservative-friendly uh, payment processor, and we custom-created my own payment platform which is available at brandonstrock.com. It's S-T-R-A-K-A. So if people want to help with financial support, they can go to brandonstrock.com and sign up for my emails while you're there. And the last thing I want to say is my organization, WalkAway, is going to come back this year bigger and better than ever. And we are going to take down the Democratic Party. And I need people to support by going to walkawaycampaign.com and become a donor toward my organization because we're going to come back and we're going to we're going to take all of these people down. This can't be allowed to stand in this country. I want to ask your counsel. I assume you're going to appeal what took place here, sir. Uh, well, unfortunately, as part of the plea agreement, we had to waive our appellate rights. Oh so wow! Isn't that deal. amazing? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they have all the leverage. They have all the leverage to throw him away for years, and uh, and they're really scared of an appeal. They're really scared. That, that's, that is just so disgusting. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you both for coming on the program. I hope you were able to, to get your uh, 
your point across, Brandon, will be with us on Levin TV next week. Where we'll have a little bit more time, but I wanted to make sure you got to say his piece right now. And, uh, and we wish you all the best. And God bless you. And uh, we'll be talking later. And we'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. That was remarkable, wasn't it? By the way, uh, note to publishers and surrogates of authors. Don't contact me asking for the person you represent to be on Life, Liberty, and Levin. We have a process. You go to Fox. You talk to the producer. It's not bookends. It's C-SPAN. I will bring individuals on from time to time uh, who have something to say, not to interview them about their book, but to comment about what's in their book that may be newsworthy or breaking. I've already suggested to Fox that they ought to have a show, which I would do, which would interview authors each week. It could be very late at night that it would have a fairly substantial following. I'm certain of it. But at this point, that's not something that they're of a mind to do. That's okay. I brought it up months and months and months ago. It's their network. They can do whatever they want. But I can't turn Life, Liberty, and Levin into book notes. I just can't do it. <clears throat> if there's a book out there that's very hot because of the substance in particular that's out that I think you you need to be aware of, that's important. But I just can't bring friends and neighbors and people through left and right and left and right. I don't have a show five days a week. I don't want a show five days a week. I have a show once a week on TV, on cable TV. That's it. So uh, there's a lot to get to when you only do one hour on TV. I mean, I've got radio. I offer to bring people here where they actually have a bigger audience. We've got Levin TV, which is very, very hot, folks, so you know. Subscriptions are through the roof. And uh, those are excellent platforms as well. So uh, if I'm contacted directly, the chances are very, very uh, minimal or less likely, unless they're personal friends of mine, of course, but I just can't handle all of it. The judge who was handling uh, the case involving Brandon Strzok, I knew nothing of her, but now I've looked. 
And CNN is very excited about her, a federal judge on And by the way, she's very political. She worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Then she worked for three years in George W. Bush's counsel's office. So she's a rhino. A federal judge on Friday upheld the Justice Department, probably a never-Trumper, even though she was appointed by him. The DOJ's decision to use a felony obstruction law, listen to this, against U.S. Capitol rioters, a major victory for prosecutors who have used the statute to charge hundreds of Trump supporters who were involved in the January 6th insurrection. This is how they write it. Several other defendants have challenged the law, and many of those are still pending, you know, with other judges. But Friday's ruling, this was in December, means the Justice Department's strategy for charging the Capitol rioters has survived a key test. Now, does Brandon Strzok sound like a rioter to you, Mr. Producer? But this is the language of the press. Everybody's a rioter. Everybody's an insurrectionist. Everybody has to have the book thrown at them. Now, there's different people. Some people attack the cops. They should be prosecuted. Some people did damage to the Capitol building. They should be prosecuted. Some people were waved into the Capitol building. They should not be prosecuted. Some people were on the steps of the Capitol building. They should not be prosecuted for trespassing. Some people were on the lawn of the Capitol building. They should not be prosecuted either. We're talking about federal prosecutions in a city where the death rate is through the roof. Let me continue. Federal Judge Dabney Friedrich, that's her name, denied a request by two rioters to throw out the charge obstruction of an official proceeding, which is often used for things like witness tampering, but has been used in January 6 cases because of the disruption of the Electoral College proceedings before Congress. So what the judge did here, and I went and looked at it during the break, she's taken a statute... And she's broadened the definition. That's what she did. That's what she did. And she's praised for it. She should never become an appellate judge, God forbid, on the Supreme Court. No way. Lawmakers' formal certification of President Joe Biden's victory was delayed for hours as rioters ransacked the building and fought with police officers. Did everybody ransack the building and fight with police officers? You need to distinguish between individual human beings. Right, Judge uh, Dabney Friedrich? Correct? Friedrich, a Trump appointee, rejected the defense's argument that the congressional certification of electoral uh, college results was not an official proceeding. The joint session has the trappings of a formal hearing before an official body, Friedrich wrote. In other words, we're not talking about something like this. You're talking about... (coughs) For instance, interfering with a court case, that sort of thing. There's a presiding officer, a process by which objections can be heard, debated, and ruled upon, and a decision, the certification of results that must be reached before the session can be adjourned. Accordingly, the congressional certification at issue here is a proceeding before Congress. It's not a proceeding before Congress. It's not a proceeding before Congress. It is Congress members of Congress voting on an issue related to the Electoral College. Clearly not what was meant. She also rejected arguments the law was unconstitutionally vague and that it only pertains to judicial, not congressional proceedings. So she's taken the traditional use of it and expanded it. How many of those people in Code Pink, other people who are interrupting the Kavanaugh hearings, 
were charged with obstruction by the Department of Justice, by the career prosecutors there, Judge. I'd like to know. I'd just like to know. So she uh, broadened it. The ruling concerned CNN rights only two specific defendants, and it doesn't prevent other district judges from ruling against the department in other cases. Prosecutors have used the felony obstruction charge as the cornerstone of many more serious capital riot cases. And it goes on. There's a lot of people who didn't riot. There's a lot of people who didn't enter the building. Who were on the steps. Who were on the lawn. Who probably didn't even know they were trespassing. Is my guess. Just my guess. And judges shouldn't be giving political speeches from the bench. Or at all. Three years probation. Three years. And the deal included he he couldn't appeal to the circuit court or the Supreme Court afterwards. They really have this lockdown, don't they, ladies and gentlemen? I'm sure the media, the Washington Compost, the paper in Washington, D.C., that's read by the left, read by the judges. I'm sure they're all thrilled by this. Phil Bump, I'm sure he's on top of this. It's very, very troubling. I read to you uh, what so many of the framers of this country thought about an activist court, an activist judiciary. And they ought to write about this. Some of the places that talk about January 6th, some of the pseudo-conservatives, are they troubled by this? Even if they hate Trump and January 6th, what about this? Does this bother them? Apparently not, because they haven't written about it, most of them anyway. But it bothers me. Person has a right to defend themselves. They have a right to a lawyer. When you're up against the federal government, it's a very difficult thing. Look, I was chief of staff to an attorney general. We were law and order, and I believe in law and order. I do not believe in throwing the book at people who trespassed or who were parading. Attacking cops, yes. But the inconsistency among the judicial, uh, the judiciary. The inconsistency on how they treat quote-unquote rioters is really nakedly bare to every American in this country. I want Judge Dabney Friedrich and the other federal judges to know, including several who I know. When we were at the White House on the South Lawn during the Republican Convention, because that's where they held it. Uh, and on one of the occasions when we were watching, my wife and I, Bongino was there with his wonderful wife. Senator Paul was there with his wonderful wife. A lot of us. During the last hour or so, we heard loud chanting, loud noises, loud threats from Black Lives Matter and Antifa and other rioters, real rioters. We were inside the gates. But we knew when we would leave that compound and go outside the gates... We could be harmed. The police and the Secret Service tried to direct us around the White House to another area where they thought the rioters and insurrectionists on the left were not. But there were a ton of them targeting the people coming out of the White House. A ton of them. Rand Paul, as you know, was assaulted 
Dan Bongino talked about threats to him and his wife. My wife and I and some others, we made our way around. In fact, we were with uh, Tom Fitton, a judicial watch, and his wife, among others. <clears throat> we had a walk about, I don't know, a third of a mile, half a mile away, in order to try and find an Uber or any form of transportation. In other words, we were all sitting ducks. I wish Judge Friedrich was with us to see what was taking place. I wish she could have seen what was taking place. And the fact that the careerists at the Department of Justice did not have the same level of aggressive prosecutorial motives, apparently, as they do now. As they do now. These were very violent people. Very violent people. And you could see the fear on the face of so many people. And I admit that I'm not a congressman or a senator, but I think I'm still an American citizen. Shame on these people. Shame on the Department of Justice and these judges, because this is not equal justice. And if they think they're going to get promoted as a result of this, I think they can think again. We need real justice. Every person on January 6th was not an insurrectionist, and that was not an insurrection. I don't know how many more times I can explain this. Uh, There's no stronger support of the police than I. There's no stronger support of law and order than I. People who commit crime should be prosecuted. But people who have not committed crimes or have not done something that is worthy of the kind of attacks that they're under then that means our system is corrupt. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Quite the rhino this judge was before being a judge. She worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee, I'm reading here, for uh, Senator Orrin Hatch. She was on the Sentencing Commission, where one of her greatest focuses was on disparity. It says here in what I'm reading, rightly or wrongly, that, uh, let's see here, um, thousands of uh, criminals had their cases uh, reduced significantly. 28,544 prison sentences were reduced following the review of each case by a federal judge. Uh, she was concerned about the disparities between those using crack and those using other drugs. Uh, big bipartisan approach to uh, to matters. Uh, believed in criminal justice reform. Uh, let's see here. You know, I think of the Reagan days when I was chief of staff to Attorney General Meese. This would not be the kind of person we would put on the sentencing commission. That's where she was. We put somebody on the Sentencing Commission who believed in sentencing people for their criminal activities. Drugs are a big problem in this country. They're, they're flowing over the border. They're flowing more than ever before. It affects people. Crack cocaine affects people. It kills people. So this, this in part is the kind of mindset we're talking about. She was been in and around Washington, D.C. for some time. 
uh, Hatch, Bush, Sentencing Committee, uh, Obama reappointed her to the Senate. I, I don't know. How the hell did Trump point, point this uh, person? I don't know. Um, you know, the problem is when you're an outsider and you're coming in, um, you don't have a lot of context, a lot of people to rely on. It may have been that Hatch pushed her. That's probably what happened. How much you want to bet that Hatch promoted her to Trump? How much you want to bet? I would bet it a lot. All right, let me move on here. Enough of her. Black Lives Matter. Well, let's co-founder Patrice Colliers. You remember her, the commie? Tied to other groups with spending red flags report. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Colliers, who resigned in the wake of a post-expose of her spending spree on lavish homes, is tied to several other fundraising organizations whose finances raised potential red flags, according to a new report. One of the groups, Reform LA Jails, in 2019 collected more than $1.4 million, of which 205000 went to a consulting company owned by Colliers and her spouse, Janana Khan, New York Magazine said. Yeah, Khan's about right. Another 211000 was paid to Collier's pal, Asha Bandley, who co-wrote her memoir, and about 86000 was paid to an entertainment, clothing, and consulting company called Trap Heels, which was started by Damon Turner, the father of Collier's child, according to the report. It sounds like the Maxine Waters family, where she's been funneling tons of money to her daughter, because she's such a campaign genius. Uh, Reform LA Jails also reportedly paid 270000 to a consulting company run by its treasurer, Christman Bowers, who's also known to Shalomia Bowers and has signed tax documents as the deputy executive director of Black Lives Matter Global Network. Wow. What a fraud. The whole thing is a fraud. The whole thing is a money-making operation. How many people have been helped in the inner cities by Black Lives Matter? Anybody out there? Anybody out there? Feel free to call up and let me know how Black Lives Matter has helped you in your community. I, I'm just curious. I'm curious. Let's see here. At the same time, an investigation's being opened in California, and they're demanding answers right now. They want to know... What's happened to the money of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter Global? Where's the money? Where did it go? We're talking about 50 to 90 million dollars. 50 to 90 million dollars. I'm hoping all of its uh, big iconic people out there who supported this group will tell us about it. I wonder where Mitt Romney stands. Probably on his head. I'll be right back. Levin, a champion of freedom. You know, you're one of the greatest champions of freedom in this country, if not in the English-speaking world, Mark. Call Mark at 877-381-3811. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. I like Mike a lot, by the way. There's a bill being pushed now, as are several, to amend the statute we talked about earlier, the Electoral Count Act. ECA, they're calling it the Electoral Count Modernization Act, Democrats and Republicans, to avoid what happened in 2020. Not that it matters. I can't support any change that does not include a provision that underscores and enforces the obligation 
of the state legislatures to determine how electors are chosen. Otherwise, this is the tail wagging the dog. That's what led to this in the first place. So there's no way that this is a real reform unless that is acknowledged. Because that was the fuse that was lit by the DNC, by the Democrat lawyers, by Elias, by these Democrat state-elected judges, and worse, that brought us to the point of people raising serious concerns about the election. And rightly so. And rightly so. And they even have here that the bill places responsibility for identifying the correct electors with the governor. That's not what the Constitution says. The powers with the state legislatures. They decide. They decide. Not Congress. Nobody else. They decide who the correct electors are. Not the governor. Can't be done by statute. Can't be done by mob media mentality. So right in here, they have an unconstitutional provision. Let's see about all the people who really want to follow the Constitution. Let's see what they have to say about it. Nothing good, I'm sure. But this needs to be resolved. The failure of the United States Supreme Court to uphold that provision was a damnable, shameful, cowardly decision by that court. Because it only leads to more problems. Hollywood John there, the Chief Justice, just as a disaster. Wild redistricting to give Democrats more House seats. Daily Wire, brazen attempt at rigging election to keep Pelosi speaker. And others are noticing this too, finally. The Democrats have so far rigged enough seats, ladies and gentlemen, where they have, by latest count, Eight more Democrats coming into the House of Representatives without a single vote. Eight. Eight. I think I said eight. But they want to count every vote, you see. They want to amend a statute when it comes to counting elect. They're crooks. They are corrupt. They are poison. They're a cancer on the body politic. They're a rash on the inner thigh of the body politic. No, they're a hemorrhoid on the body politic. And they're not going to stop. Brazen, outrageous attempt, the gentleman says, at rigging the election to keep Pelosi as speaker. No, we can't talk about that. Trump! Talk about Trump! It's disgusting what they get away with. Disgusting. You wonder why people get angry. Nancy Pelosi's son... Chip off the old la- the old block. Can't say lady anymore. Nancy Pelosi is not a lady. You're not allowed to use that word anymore, right? She's not a birthing person anymore either, is she, Mr. Producer? I think at 81, I think it's at some point that's, that just stops. So what is she? A formerly birthing person? I think so. So the Speaker of the House, the first formerly birthing person, birthed this guy. Paul Pelosi Jr. Chip off the old block. Daily Mail. You won't read this in the New York Slimes or the Washington Compost. You won't see it on the Constipated News Network. MSLSD? No. 
It's amazing what people are still walking the planet and not in prison for the things they've done. And then you listen about, you know, Brendan Strzok and others. They were trespassing on the Capitol grounds. No way. You know, no, they were. Yes. Nancy Pelosi's son, Daily Mail exclusive, embroiled in his sixth FBI probe. This time in San Francisco, official who was allegedly bribed to remove permit violations against squalid Flophouse, the pit owned by his ex-girlfriend. Woo. A lot in that sentence. Paul Pelosi Jr., not to be confused with his stupid big dad, Paul Pelosi Jr. is involved in an FBI investigation into San Francisco officials who were allegedly bribed to remove violations at his ex-girlfriend's property. Well, you know what? These uh, Hunter Pelosi know how to pick them, don't they? City permit expediter Rodrigo Santos, a former president of the San Francisco Building Inspection Commission, was indicted for fraud in November. Santos is accused of having his clients donate thousands of dollars to building inspector Bernie Curran's rugby club in exchange for city permits. Pelosi seems to match the description of client number nine, who wrote the Golden Gate Youth Rugby Association a $1,500 check, according to prosecutors' documents. The money was meant to encourage Curran to remove violation notices against a squalid Mission District hotel that had a history of permit violations. A federal criminal complaint details alleged text messages from Santos telling Client 9 to drop off a check to the sports club. With pleasure, Client 9 replied, and later sent Santos a picture of a $1,500 check with the message, made the donation, and it's being sent now. Anyway, earlier this month, a DailyMail.com investigation revealed he was linked to five other federal probes in the past. Hey, what's the... Little violation, one or another. At least he wasn't trespassing. Nancy Pelosi's son is embroiled in an FBI investigation, as I said. So it's a bribery scheme. They're alleging a bribery scheme. So when will Nancy Pelosi's taxes be released? Her and the big, the big clown that is her husband. When will they release their tax returns? When will the media demand it? When will the Republicans demand it? These people decide. These people decide what the legislation is coming for. So we have a commission investigating Trump, an impeachment of Trump, another impeachment of Trump, a criminal investigation of Trump, his kids, his pets, his properties, but nothing on Nancy. We've told she's the most powerful former birthing woman in America. She's the number three in line for president of the United States. She decides what legislation comes to the House floor. She creates a Stalinist commission. She appoints all the members, even the repubes. But she doesn't know anything. It's like Biden. His son's making a fortune off his contacts with communist China and corrupt Ukrainian regime before this current uh, government. You have emails that talk about him getting 10% or I'm tired of giving pop money or emails, emails, direct evidence, but no special prosecutor, no congressional review. When the Republicans controlled the Senate Judiciary Committee under Lindsay, Lindsay, 
Lindsay, where are you, Lindsay? Everybody's friend. It's very annoying, Lindsay, quite frankly. So they want to steal congressional seats. Steal the vote, ladies and gentlemen. But nobody is concerned, no. No, no, because they're the good guys. They're on the right side. The Democrats, the American Marxists, that's good. So what if people's votes won't count because of the way the redistricting... New York is so friggin' corrupt. The Republicans might have three seats by the time it's over. Out of what, 22, something like that? They lose population. And so the Democrats have perfect opportunity. Illinois. Another corrupt Democrat stronghold where people can't wait to get the hell out. Same thing. California, same thing. Same thing. Now when the Republicans thought, whoa, you're discriminating. What? Yes. 1965 Civil Rights slash Voting Rights Act. You're doing this to discriminate against black people. No, 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 no. We want to get out our vote too. No, it's clear. You're white supremacists, you're Klansmen. We're taking you to court and we're going to stop you. That's how they abuse the law. With the power of the Civil Rights Division, which is really the uncivil rights division of the Department of Justice, which is loaded with radical leftists from throughout the decades. I remember when I was at the Department of Justice, one of the people there was there since Robert Kennedy was Attorney General of the United States, Mr. Producer. Go way back. Because they don't want to leave. They have enormous power, you know. Maybe they're waiting for a judgeship. That could be it, too. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. I won't be here the rest of the week. We will have great um, guest hosts, uh, but I will not be here. I want to say a special happy birthday to our granddaughter, Sloan. She makes us proud every day. She's turning eight, a beautiful young lady. She is the daughter of my daughter and my son-in-law. That would be Lauren and Nick. And she is just precious, as is her little brother, Asher. And we are blessed to have them. So happy birthday, Sloan. And uh, Grandpa hopes to see you soon. Yes, and we shall. Whoopi Goldberg. I said enough yesterday. I spent a lot of time on this yesterday. Would you do me a favor, Mr. Producer, and send a clip of that to Dana Perino? I think she might actually be, you know, be interested in that, just out of curiosity. Um, I think she might like to know what I said about it. Uh, in any event, um, Whoopi Goldberg says now she understands. I don't get this. What is she, 73 years old or something? What, however old she is. She's gone through life. And didn't understand that Hitler called Jews the inferior race and Nazis the superior race? She doesn't even have a clue what the Holocaust was about? 
She went through life like that. And this is the thing. I think a lot of people do, particularly on the left, because they keep calling us Hitler and stuff like that. When we support liberty and the Constitution and a smaller central government and a just law enforcement that protects the people and a military that protects us from Marxists and fascists and other ists, I mean, seriously. She's on the view because supposedly people want to hear her view. Or her view was outrageous. Now there's this campaign to get, I discussed all this yesterday already, and I see the backbenchers uh, have, have learned well, but let me just go on. The campaign to get Joe Rogan and so forth. Joe Rogan never said anything like this. And yet, Whoopi Goldberg, does she understand the last name that she adopted, Mr. Producer, is a Jewish name? Goldberg? That's not her real name, folks. It was a joke. Whoopi Goldberg. But that's her official name. Does she not understand? Apparently not. Then she goes on Stephen Colbert's show, whose real name is Colbert. His brother's a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Right, Tom? Right, Tom? Tom, you out there? He's another one with the name, Colbert. But he gives her a platform to try and rehabilitate herself because he's not a comedian. He's a joke, but he's not a comedian. And what's with the, uh, the Dr. Spock ears with him, Mr. Producer, or Mr. Spock ears? Particularly that one ear that kind of makes a left turn. Have you noticed that? Nothing personal. I can make jokes, too. Very personal jokes. See that, Colbert? And I don't need ten writers to do it for me. Cut three, Mr. Producer. Let's just hit it. Cut three. Go. As the white guy in the conversation uh-huh. here, I am, I am neither uh, Jewish nor am I black, and so I have a different what perspective. What a stupid of- show. What a stupid show. As the white guy in the conversation, I'm neither Jewish nor black. Go ahead. It seems to me that whiteness is a construct created by colonial powers um, during the beginning of colonial imperialist era in order to What the hell are you talking about, moron? You're way out of your lane. You are way out of your lane. You're going the wrong way on a one-way street, brother. Whiteness is a construct created by the colonial powers during the beginning of colonial imperialist era in order to exploit other people, that they could apply it to all different kinds of people. The idea of race and American experience tends to be based on skin. Do they have happy hour before this show goes on? I think they do. I'm sure they do. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. It is a great honor to come here every evening and be with you. I cannot thank you enough. I'm deeply blessed. We shall get through this together. Please listen to our wonderful hosts, and I will see you on Monday. God bless you.